Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Michelle Feller to talk about her experience with urban farming and biomimicry. Michelle's love for gardening was imprinted during her childhood in Switzerland, where she grew up surrounded by green, lush vegetation. She spent most of her childhood in her parents' garden, connecting on a deep level with nature. In her mid-twenties, she moved to Phoenix for a six-month adventure, and now, after 19 years, she calls Phoenix her home. Michelle is a trained graphic designer who received her master's exploring biomimetic and sustainable graphic design. And she is a full-time faculty at the design school at Arizona State University. These days, her garden provides her with much-needed time for restorative energy while she is working on her second master's through the newly established biomimicry program at Arizona State University, as well as working on her biomimicry professional certification through Biomimicry 3.8. 
Welcome to the show today, Michelle. Thank you. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Yeah. So um, as the biography says, I'm originally from Switzerland, um, but I found my home in Phoenix now. And it was quite an interesting path and journey to get to where I'm at now, especially since some things, you know, you tend to plan in life and then Mm -hmm. life happens and suddenly you find yourself on the other side of where you thought you wanted to Mm -hmm. be, but it's actually the better side. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's actually one of the experiences that I've had to really try to go with the flow a little bit instead of trying to plan everything out. Mm -hmm. So then my plan was to stay for six months and just experience living in a different country and Mm -hmm. then back home. And after six months, I finally felt I was settled. I finally had a car, a job, and an apartment and was ready to explore. And so I stayed a little bit longer and then I (laughs) I started taking a class at the community college and really loved going to school. Didn't even know that I was kind of the eternal student. Um, It just kind of awoke that monster inside of me. Uh So I started taking classes. I finally was able to go into the direction of graphic design, which was a passion of mine, but I never actually got formal education in it. So America allowed me to explore that area. And I graduated, yeah, I graduated from ASU with a bachelor's degree in graphic design. Mm Mm-hmm. But then I worked in graphic design for a few years, and I noticed that um, my work is contributing a lot to a lot of problems that we have in terms of not only visual noise, but Mm -hmm. also just trash. I mean, designers design the most beautiful trash. How long do you look at something that you get in your mailbox before you throw it hopefully in the recycling bin, (laughs) you know? So then... Yeah, seconds. Yeah, seconds, if anything. And so I was a little bit torn because coming from Switzerland, living outdoors for my, most of my childhood, mm-hmm. I, I felt removed from the natural environment living in Phoenix because I was spending a lot of time indoors. I was in the air conditioning at home. Then I went to the car in the air conditioning. I drove to work in the air conditioning. I went shopping in the air conditioned grocery store. Mm-hmm. So you had to actually schedule time to go outside. <laughs> which was a new thing for me too. Um, so the whole package of working in an industry that uses a lot of resources and bombards people with messages that they might not even want to see right. and producing all this trash and not being in tune with nature around me, that kind of, it came a little bit to a, a tension point where I had to do something about it. And I didn't even really know what that was, but I went to a conference for graphic design in San Diego and listened to a speaker talk about biomimicry. And biomimicry, she talked about how it it influences our decisions if we just look to nature to do things the way the planet does. Mm -hmm. And it kind of a light bulb went on. And since then I've been on my path to align my personal life and my career to follow that kind of notion of looking to nature for solutions and integrating those into my life. Yeah. So what kind of conference did you go to? It was an AIGA conference. It, it was called Y13. It's the series of conferences that they have. It's a very small, intimate, fun little get together. Mm-hmm. It was organized by AIGA, which is the professional organization for graphic designers. So you went to a, you went to a graphic design conference and somebody yes. was talking about biomimicry there. Right. Brilliant. Because, yeah, Brilliant. The, topic, the topic was about sustainable graphic design and uh-huh. 
biomimicry is not a standalone discipline. It's not a discipline that you go into and you spend your life in it. Right. It's that you take it and you infuse it into what you were already doing. Mm. So it was really a good place to so, meet the two. So tell us, what, what, where, what is biomimicry and where did it come from? Well, biomimicry itself, the action of biomimicry has been around for a long time. I mean, if you look back to the native people and aborigines, for example, they still function and operate alongside nature. With nature, they, they do things that leverage, you know, things that happen in nature. But as a, an actual discipline and as a common word that is now being pushed forward in a more focused way, mm -hmm. it was Janine Benyus who came up with the term for her book that she published, and it was called Biomimicry Innovation Inspired by Nature. And she has various chapters in there where she talks about different areas of problems that we have. And it's really, you know, one chapter was about agriculture and about monocultures, comparing it to a natural prairie on how nature actually produces food and plant matter and why it does it the way it does it and what we could borrow from it to adjust our agriculture and food production methods. Interesting. So biomimicry is really to emulate consciously what nature does mm -hmm. and it has three tenets that go with it and one of them is the emulation part which is the one that most people talk about and that's what people mostly can can connect with mm -hmm. so you know one of the most famous examples is a train that was adjusted its shape was adjusted to to be formed like the beak of a kingfisher so that it can go in and out of tunnels without causing too much of a problem with the ultrasound. Oh, it, interesting. It became more energy efficient that way. Mm -hmm. A more recent and really exciting example is Ornilux, which is a product that came out of Germany, out of a glass company. And I don't know if you know this, but there's between 300 million and 1 billion birds that get, they get killed every year from fatal impact to glass in buildings. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a staggering number and it's a huge problem, especially now that we're building more and more with glass because of sustainability reasons. Oh, yeah. So they actually looked to the golden orb weaver, which is a spider who builds a nest or a web with ultraviolet th uh, threads in it. And those are called stabilimenta. And it reflects UV light so that the birds can actually see the web and not fly into it. Because the spider... How interesting uses, is that? The spider uses a lot of resources and time to spin the web and it doesn't want it to be ruined you know on a constant basis every day right. so now they're taking those ultraviolet ideas and layers and they cover it on the glass in a pattern so that birds can see the glass and not fly into it hmm. yeah so that's that's kind of you know some of the ideas behind biomimicry in terms of getting inspiration from nature and taking yeah. the function from nature and applying it for human systems. Great, so your master's, you're actually working on a master's right now in yes. biomimicry, but you've threaded in biomimicry and sustainable graphic design. What does that look like? <laughs> it is more also of a systemic or strategic approach. So when you say graphic design, most people imagine a flyer or a poster. Right. And yes, you can do things for that poster specifically that are sustainable. You can choose the right paper, the right size, you can use really good ink. But it goes a little further if you think about the function of what you want to do with that poster. So if you want to think of it as a 
vehicle that could educate or improve someone's life, then you could also look at the poster and ask yourself, okay, I'm going to use these resources, which is, you know, the time that you need to design it, you're using the computer to design it with electricity, you're printing on paper, you're sending it out, you're producing trash in the end. Now let's look at the benefit that it brought with it to the greater good. Right. And if you think about those factors and maybe establish cooperative relationships with someone, maybe you're benefiting someone, maybe it's a poster that brings two groups together that normally would not talk, you know, more of a strategic approach, right. then you could look to some of those biomimetic principles of how nature does it in terms of making a, an environment that is conducive to life for everybody instead mm -hmm. of just for one constituent. So it sounds to me like you're being responsible for the end trash in for some sure. ways, right? For sure. Yes, you take responsibility for using resources and what happens to them at the end. Mm -hmm. In the best case, you can put it on your compost pile and mm -hmm. then you can grow your tomatoes out of it. Right. That would be the best way to do it. Yeah, I've always thought it was somewhat missing in our culture that companies put out products where there's a lot of waste product and they don't, you know, they don't have a plan for that waste product in the end. Yes, and it, it has to do with responsibility. You said exactly the right term. And there was a book that came out by William McDonough. It's called Cradle to Cradle. Oh, and yes. it's a very big kind of a Bible on looking to how to create things in a more circular loop versus a linear loop where it mm -hmm. ends in, in the landfill. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So you're a vegan? Yes. <laughs> so tell us about that. <laughs> so... You know, when you when you start learning, and everybody who is even listening to this podcast is on their own journey, and we all come across different documentaries and books that kind of shape our actions every day, mm -hmm. and especially people who are planting vegetables and gardening at home, I think they're very dedicated to know where the food comes from and what happens to it and mm -hmm. why and how and what's in it. And the more I came across documentaries and you know, groups online and reading books, I just noticed that the system that produces the food, especially meat products, is completely out of whack and it's completely poisoned. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm on many fronts, I don't want to put poison in my body. I also don't want to com contribute to the suffering. I've always had a conflict with it without even noticing that I had a conflict with it. And there was one event that was kind of the light bulb that went on. And I went to Gene Bauer's book signing of the Farm Sanctuary book that he held at the Changing Hand bookstore uh -huh. um, more than a year ago, but a little over a year ago. And while he was talking, it really made so much sense that I decided to give it a shot. And it wasn't easy at first. And then I had a little phase where I went to travel in Europe and it was completely impossible, uh -huh. especially in France. To oh, yeah. Vegan. They kind of kicked me out of one of the restaurants, actually, when I asked for something without cheese. But um, <laughs> they, they're not on board with it yet. Right. But, you know, I got back on the horse, and now my, my boyfriend is also on board. He noticed that he actually lost a lot of weight with it. So oh, yeah. it was really a great motivator for him. And now I don't miss it at all anymore. It's not a component of my life anymore that I even notice. Mm -hmm. It's just, that's just what happened, and now I'm not eating any meat Wow. or any animal products cool. and I'm trying to do it all across the board you know now I make completely different decisions when it comes to buying socks for hiking you know it used to be mm -hmm. just wool socks and I can 
you know, I cannot completely go 100% yet because there's some things that you just can't find good alternatives for. But right. as, at least I'm thinking about it and I'm at least thinking about the consequences that I'm making yeah. by my actions. And how has biomimicry uh, impacted this decision? I do see all of these things of my journey feeding into one central point. And I actually wanted to mention that the course workshop that I took from you a couple of years back on how to do urban farming oh, yes. was a turning point as well. And then biomimicry is a turning point and everything. I mean, it's just, if you have your eyes open every day, that could be a sign or something new that you can learn that kind of tweaks your path a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so the gardening side is difficult in the beginning because I feel that I didn't understand the exact connections between things. I didn't really understand, you know, where to plant something because of what, because of what elements and what to do when something went wrong. Right. And so biomimicry teaches very strongly that there are feedback loops, for example, that we should pay attention to. And the feedback loops will give us information of what to tweak and what not to tweak, for example, you know. Or then there is the leveraging the cyclic processes is one of the life's principles in biomimicry. And they just tell us as gardeners that we can take the, the tree, the deciduous tree, and use its shade in the summertime. But because it loses its leaves in the wintertime, yep. we can use it in a different way. And we're totally leveraging that ability of the tree to lose its leaves to preserve energy for our own benefit. So biomimicry is influencing a lot of things in my life, whether consciously or unconsciously. And mm-hmm. the vegan side definitely was influenced by it because I, I don't want to feed even one dollar into an industry that is not thinking of the greater Beautiful. good or, or helping yeah. you know the health of the planet. Yeah, that, and that goes right to spend money where you want to support. For sure. It has a big influence. I mean, that's really the only way that we vote how we vote every day. It doesn't matter what you vote at the ballot in the end, we're noticing, but it does matter how you vote with the dollar. Yeah, exactly. So what I want to know is, this is a curious question. What do you wish humans would do or learn to stay on this planet? Well, you know, in the big picture, I really wish that we as humans or we as homo sapiens would learn that we are here as a guest on this planet Mm. and not necessarily here as a destroyer or as a selfishly survivor (laughs) in certain ways. I, I really wish that we would invite ourselves into the rest of the 30 million species that are occupying the same space and using the same resources and actually producing resources for us with a little bit more respect. And I do believe that it has to do with uh, knowing about the benefits and learning about the systems that we're surrounded by. Uh Because if we don't know about something, then we can't value it. And if we don't value it, then we don't uh, adjust our actions to actually respect it and treat it in a way that it should be treated. So I really wish that we would come away from the notion of industrialization where we see the planet as a resource and, you know, the value of of making decisions based on profit is a short-term way to, to do business yeah. and it's not benefiting anyone in the in the bigger picture and it's really hurting for the most part. So I, I wish we would get away from that kind of value system and and see ourselves as a little more of a guest on this uh-huh. place instead of a, an owner. I love that. Guest on the planet. 
That's, <laughs> that's beautiful. So I'm a huge advocate for naming our urban farms. In fact, I've got a project here in Phoenix I'm working on called 10,000 Urban Farms. Uh-huh. And I am told that you have named yours. <laughs> I have named ours. I do. And it actually was quite a process. It involved my mother and my sister and everybody pitched in. But oh, we, wow. came, we came to a final conclusion that kind of, you know, encapsulated how we feel about this space. And it's called Zenhattan. So it actually starts with the Z from Zurich, from where I'm from. And uh-huh. the second part is Hatton, where my boyfriend's from Manhattan. So we combined the two cities where we're from. Ah. But I also have the word Zen in there because I'm spelling it Z-E-N. Oh, yes. So it integrates the yoga side and the vegan side <laughs> and the spiritual side of how I feel when I'm in the garden or how we feel when we're spending time outside right. in space. Zen Hatton. Yes. Beautiful. And I only named my farm because of you. Oh, well, thank you. I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) You said that very clearly in the beginning, that if we start gardening, then we should give it a name because that becomes a little bit more tangible and we have a relationship with it. Yeah, it builds a a, a, a conversation for our farms out in the world. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And it gives it an identity and it gives meaning to it. And I found for me that, you know, the urban farm is a known place here in town now for about the past 20 years. And, you know, yeah. people will come to me and I, I had somebody at, at, at uh, Home Depot the other day. She walked up to me and she said, you're Craig Peterson, aren't you? Like, yeah, I am. And she said, well, thank you for all the work you're doing. And, you know, that's that's 20 years into it. Wow. But mm-hmm. I make I made a difference for her. And I think a big piece of that is because I decided to give it a name and, you know, call it something bigger in the world. So it really makes a difference. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I'm going to shift on you, and I would like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. So if you were able to discern so far that I'm a big, big animal lover. And so when I first moved into my house, which is located in an area in Phoenix that has feral and wild birds, it has roosters and chickens and... I think that was a rooster that we were hearing a little while ago, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah, it was. Roosters all around my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so I was really excited to be in this space, which makes me feel like I'm back home on the farm, you know. Mm-hmm. It feel like mm-hmm. I'm on land somewhere, not in a city. And so I really appreciated that, and I kind of started to take on responsibility for some of these creatures around me a little bit too much. So what, what started is I started feeding them here and there, and uh-huh. then, and then it was just oatmeal from the grocery store. But then at some point I went to a feed and tack place and I started buying real chicken food <laughs> and I started putting out water and I started freezing fruits in the summertime with, you know, mm-hmm. ice blocks and, and it was all good and fine. The problem was that I was creating a new ecosystem that they were not used to around my house in a way that they were spending their entire day on my front porch and it caused some troubles with territory. It caused troubles with um, mm. roosters fighting. Mm-hmm. Aside from the little detail and annoyance that we had to step over poop all the time to get home, you know, whenever we were coming home. Right. So it got a, a little bit out of control, I have to say. It was a little crazy. I mean, we had sometimes like 30, 30 chickens and roosters and maybe 20 peacocks up front. And it was just oh my gosh. a lot. Peacocks too. Peacocks too, yes. Wow. And they're really cute. Have you ever seen a peacock baby? I mean, they're just the, the most adorable little things. I haven't. I'm going to go look them up now. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for them to appear. Actually, they always come out in about July, so I'm waiting for them to appear around my house. But so I had to reduce. But I'm such a heart, you know, person that it's hard for me to see them when they beg for food. And so my, I actually left for six weeks last summer, and my boyfriend has the diligence and the determination to adjust the animals to a new rhythm. So he was able to help me to just do the feeding in a random place and oh, yes. random time so that it's not getting out of hand. Because mm -hmm. there was some there were some rooster fightings that were pretty ugly to, to death. I mean some of them fight till death. And wow. when there's too many roosters in one space, it just doesn't work well. So yeah. I I learned from it that my actions have direct influence mm -hmm. and consequences on living systems, no matter what my intention was. You know, I meant well, but my involvement in it kind of disturbed a really well-balanced system that, you know, was not my intention to do, but it actually happened. So yeah. it was tragic to see that. Yeah. I, that, yeah. Wow. That, that's a great learning and a great seeing. And I can, I know you, we, we know each other, and I can <laughs> see how hard it would be for you to, you know, see these wonderful chickens out in, out in yeah. your front yard and ignore them. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm not completely ignoring them. I give them food once in a while, you know, whenever we have scraps or something mm -hmm. and we just throw out a little bit of food. And, and whenever there's a hurt chicken or baby chicken, then, of course, I take care of them. Yeah. But I'm not getting involved that much anymore. I'm just letting them do the survivor thing, you yeah. know. Letting them be in nature. Yeah, they have to be nature. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the more you try to... There's one little story about little Peewee who was a tiny little chick baby and he could never make it up into the tree because that's where they sleep. They sleep in the trees at night. Right. And he was too small to make it up there. His siblings were up there, but he couldn't make it up there. So I was there every night, adjusted my social and career schedule. Oh to my gosh. When they went to bed to lift his little butt up into the tree. <laughs> and, you know, it was cute. And he's actually the head honcho now, but who knows? He was not supposed to survive. Maybe he's not the one with the strongest genes. Maybe yeah. he's not supposed to have descendants. Who knows what kind of influence I had with that? You never know. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how quickly and subtly we can, you know, adjust yeah. nature. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Huge. So what do you consider your biggest success? Well, that is a very difficult question, I find. Um, maybe it's because of how I define success. Mm. But really, um, maybe I just look at places or times when I had a really good, satisfying feeling about my actions. And thinking back, you know, because I'm studying about biomimicry and I'm studying sustainable graphic design, but I haven't been able or given the time yet to actually teach a class about it yet. Uh -huh. But I was able to infuse it a little bit into one of the courses that I teach that is about video and storytelling. Oh, nice. And so what I did is I introduced my class to a video project where they had to tell a, to tell a story on how to do something. But the how to do something had to, something, had to have something to do with being outdoors. Oh, nice. And most of them jumped on it. There were a couple of them that were very uncomfortable and they didn't know how to connect with the outdoors. And so that was really interesting to see how they find, found their way. And yeah. so a couple of them, I just encouraged them to highlight why they don't want to connect with the outdoors or you know how it makes them feel and completely just 
be vulnerable to it. And the projects that turned out really beautiful, we had a group do a video on the principles, you know, when you go hiking, the, the outdoors principles of not leaving anything behind oh, and yes. respecting the path. There were many, many really good examples, and they actually kept on going outside after the project. I saw pictures on Facebook where they went hiking oh, and camping afterwards. Nice. But I really was happy that I was able to give them that project in the beginning and that yeah. they took it and ran with it and integrated that into their life in yeah. such a way. So that was really, really successful. Nice. Yeah, it's one of the big big pats on the back for me is when I, when I go out and teach and you know, they continue doing it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, that's the best compliment, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so what drives you? What drives me? Probably, you know, the, the intense love that I have for this place mm -hmm. that is our planet and the environment and to kind of lead by, by my doing instead of just telling people what to do. I like to live the way I feel would be the right way and then hope that other people would adjust their life in a certain way to maybe also do the same according to their values. Yeah. So it's really, for me, it's an internal drive to be as sustainable and as emphatic towards the planet as I can and to, to live in a way that is conducive for other life to also thrive, mm -hmm. not just my own. Beautiful. Beautiful. I am all about education. I have to know is there one book that has been influential for you on this process in your life? You know, the Bible that is, every biomimic has this book and everybody has read it. And actually big, big leaders have read it before they even really knew what it was all about and changed their entire company around. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the book by Janine Benyus. It's called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And mm -hmm. I can highly recommend it if anyone would be interested to at least read the chapter on agriculture because that is definitely, you know, along the way of gardening and, and food systems and all that. So mm -hmm. I can highly recommend the book. That's uh, one book. Interestingly, I have two copies on my shelf. Um, and it, and it, I, I have no idea how I got two copies on my shelf. Wow. Um, and it lives in the category of I'm going to get to reading that book one day. Ah, See, maybe you just crack it open. There to you go. the page. Go to the I'll agriculture tell you which page. page. All right. It's on page eleven. Just open up page eleven and then start reading the first five sentences and then see if you can put it down. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I always love a good book that I. Uh... And you know, normally this book is not something that you buy for yourself. Normally, it's given to you. I've uh, yes. both of my copies have been given to me, and I've given copies to people before mm -hmm. too. So it is definitely a book that. People feel strongly enough to see that as a gift and to yeah. give it to people as a gift. So that's probably why you have two copies on it. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Have you have you ever compared permaculture and biomimicry? I have not, but you know, there was a workshop that was scheduled on Beaver Island over the summer. Unfortunately, it had some logistical issues and they had to postpone it. But uh, Gretchen Hooker is a person who works with the Biomimicry 3.8 group, and she put together a biomimicry workshop with the permaculture people over there. Oh, wow. And I would think that that would be the most amazing kind of combination. <laughs> oh, of. yeah. So I definitely want to look into it. And I saw a couple of podcasts that you have on permaculture. Oh, yes. Too. Yeah, perfect. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? 
I would just like to say that the way to go about bigger goals, which gardening, urban farming is a bigger goal, mm-hmm. to not overwhelm yourself and mm-hmm. to try to do it perfect, just to take it one step at mm-hmm. a time and yeah. to be... From my life, I've learned that it's easier to go with the flow, with what feels good, rather than to force something that might not be the right time for it or might be the wrong side that you even should be on. And so taking it step by step allows for a lot of flexibility and you can adjust it a lot. And then the most important thing is to not judge and not compare. Just oh, you're, yeah. you're on your own path. You do what is right for you at that moment. Mm. And it's the best you can do. And that is plenty. And so that's really... A, you know, a better way to go about bigger projects than to just do, do it right or not at all. Mm-hmm. That's not my philosophy. So. Nice. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today. Thank Michelle. you, Craig. It was really, really nice to talk to you and connecting with you. And yeah. you're an inspiration to me as well. So well, thank you. Very thank influential. You. And, I, you know, I love doing these because I love hearing people's stories. You know, because yeah. so many people got into this so many different ways. So. And that's really the beauty of it. And the, to be able to go back to all these podcasts and listen about people with their stories just yeah. feeds into a bigger body of knowledge that we can share with each other. So that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, you know, together with Joseph Zara, who is another biomimic in town, we started a Sonoran Desert Biomimicry Network. Oh. And so one of the best ways is probably to like us on Facebook and we can put the link on the bottom of the page of the podcast Perfect. so that people can link up with us in Excellent. that way. Excellent. Biomimicry and di- drylands. You want to know about that? Yes. Connect with, uh, would you say, Sonoran Biomimicry? Sonoran Desert Biomimicry Network. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much. That's Thank it. you, Greg. Absolutely. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. 
Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.